0: in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech, and happy 10th anniversary. That's right. The show began 10 years ago. We launched Tech Stuff. And we are almost a thousand episodes in to this run, which is pretty incredible. And uh today I'm going to look at stuff that launched in 2008 and how all that stuff has changed in the last 10 years. I thought that would be a fun way to kind of break down the 10th anniversary. I, I didn't want to pick just a topic, uh, a company or a person or anything like that because I didn't feel like there was anything that would really encompass all that Tech Stuff is. So instead, we're going to look at stuff that was going on in 2008, and then kind of compare it to what's going on today. The first thing I wanted to talk about, however, was the show itself. The very first episode of Tech Stuff that ever aired, and that's an important designation, was on Tuesday, June 10th, 2008. And it had the title "How the Google Apple Cloud Computer Will Work." Say what? It was based off an article that was written by Chris Paulette. He was my original co-host on Tech Stuff. He's also one of the editors I used to work with back when I was a writer for the How Stuff Works website. And this uh, this episode, first of all, is very short. It's about five minutes long. Uh, the early episodes of Tech Stuff were all that short. Maybe some of you really wish for those days to return. But back then, we were told we could not go longer than five minutes. And that was really, really hard. This particular episode was, um, again, about this article. And the article was about a hypothetical partnership that could happen between Google and Apple. And this was something that was being talked about by various analysts. But there weren't any, you know, hard evidence to point at to say, hey, this is a this is absolutely happening. But the, the guess was that Google and Apple were going to work together with Google providing the backend computing system for an Apple based lightweight computing product, possibly a portable one. So something along the lines of like the iPad, but where all the computing elements would be handled over the cloud, uh, sort of like netbooks and later the Chromebooks that would come out. And as it turned out, that never really uh materialized in the way that people were suggesting, although we did see that model of cloud computing start to take shape. So it's not like it was totally off base, but that was the very first episode. And of course, Tech Stuff as a podcast has changed dramatically since those days. Um, Obviously, one thing is that it's now a single host show. And that happened after uh, Chris Paulette, after several years, decided he wanted to go pursue other career opportunities. He was not terribly interested in being in the limelight. Uh, I can't necessarily blame him for that. He wanted to kind of separate that from his life. He wanted to have a more uh, uh, private life. And so he left the show and pursued his other interests and is doing quite well. And then Lauren Vogelbaum joined the show for a while as co-host and then she too wanted to go and launch some new shows, work on some other projects at How Stuff Works, and she couldn't do all that and be co-host of Tech Stuff. So she also left. And since then, it's been pretty much just me with occasional guest co-hosts. And uh, and obviously the show has changed quite a bit in length as well. When we first started, like I said, it was about a five minute long show per episode. We eventually got the um, the notification that we could go to 10 or 15 minutes. And then eventually they said, just go as long as you need to go for whatever the topic happens to be. And that's when we started seeing episodes get into that 40 minute to an hour long range. And we were publishing twice a week. Then for a while we were publishing for just once a week. And now we're publishing five times a week with uh, classic episodes running on Fridays. So the show keeps on changing, except I've been on every single one of them, so I guess I'm the one constant in all of tech stuff. And uh, yeah, we're almost up to a thousand. And by the way, just in case you guys are worried, there are no plans to get rid of tech stuff. We're going to keep on going. We're going to keep on making shows about technology. There's no shortage of topics to cover, and I'm really looking forward to doing more of those. But now to talk about some other stuff that was going on in 2008. So one thing that happened in 2008 was the high-definition war sort of came to an end. Uh, Leading up to 2008, there were two big formats that were really battling it out. HD DVD, which was uh, sort of championed by Toshiba, and Blu-ray, which was championed by Sony. And the two different standards had been fighting it out in the marketplace for a while. Both uh, companies had been luring various movie studios and, and television production companies to provide... Uh, content for their particular platform exclusively. It was pretty ugly. And in 2008, it ended up being, uh, kind of concluded. Uh, HD DVD ended up bowing out to Blu-ray. Uh, now, if you're wondering what the difference was between the two formats, well, first of all, they were not compatible. So unless you had one of just a couple of pieces of equipment that could play both, you had to choose one or the other. The HD-DVD could hold about 15 gigabytes of data on a single layer of a uh, HD-DVD. You could do multiple layers and and, and increase that, but uh, it was 15 gigabytes for just a standard single-layer HD-DVD. Blu-ray could hold 25 gigabytes on a single layer. HD-DVD was less expensive than Blu-ray, but Sony was able to lure more major studios to support Blu-ray over to HD-DVD. And in January 2008... Just before CES, in fact, Blu-ray was able to lure Warner Brothers away to jump ship because they had been with HD-DVD, but then they switched over to Blu-ray and then HD-DVD would cancel their CES press conference. In the wake of that news, they said, well, we really need to reevaluate things. We can't just go ahead with our press conference anymore. It was a a real sabotage of HD-DVD and Blu-ray won out and usually lack of competition is a bad thing for consumers, but in this case, what it meant was that more people ended up buying Blu-ray players, because it was really the only uh, platform that was going to actually continue to exist. HD DVD was going to go away. And with more people buying it, that actually helped bring the price down on Blu-rays and make it more affordable, because before that, only really early adopters with a good deal of disposable income had bought into the system. Next, I want to talk about an SLR camera because this is kind of a funny story. This is 2008, remember? And that's when the Nikon D90 came out. And the D90 was a uh, 12.3 megapixel digital camera. Still is, I guess. It's an SLR. SLR stands for Single Lens Reflex. And it was the first digital SLR to feature video recording capabilities. Yep, in 2008 this was brand new. It was a DSLR capable of shooting video. Before that, was all just still images. It could record video up to 720p resolution with 24 frames per second and only mono sound. So the camera also had an autofocus feature whenever you're using it for uh, still images, but if you wanted to use it for video, you had to use manual focus tracking. I just thought that was interesting that it wasn't until 2008 that we had a digital SLR that could take video. And of course now it's a standard feature that you're going to find on all DSLRs pretty much. And, um, it, it it's just interesting to me because some of the cameras, in fact, a lot of the cameras we use here at How Stuff Works are DSLRs. And it's just one of, the, it's funny to think of a time when that was new and funny to think that that was the same year that tech stuff came out. Also in 2008, USB 3.0 was completed as a standard. It actually happened in November 2008, so it happened after TechStuff launched. The 3.0 standard for USB represented a huge jump from USB 2.0. It allowed for data transfer speeds of up to 5 gigabits per second, plus included two unidirectional data paths. Uh, This made USB 3.0 about 10 times faster than USB 2.0 for unidirectional data transfers. It was even faster if you wanted to exchange data between two devices. So what I mean by that is with USB 2.0, you had one pathway, and it was one way per data transfer. So you could send data from one device to another device in a single direction. Then you could stop and send data back the other way but you could not do it simultaneously. You only had the one channel. USB 3.0 had two unidirectional pathways, so it's like you have a pathway from device one to device two and a different pathway from device two back to device one, and you could send data back across each device simultaneously, so it could be much, much faster. The first products to feature USB 3.0 would not come out until 2009, and even those weren't really consumer products. The consumer products wouldn't come out till 2010. So still a couple years out before USB 3.0 would really fall into the hands of consumers. Bill Gates retired as chief software architect for Microsoft in June 2008. Uh, I actually remember the CES presentation where he and Steve Ballmer came out and they even showed a video of uh, what Bill Gates' uh, uh, last day in the office would be like. It was very comedic. It was a very funny little self-deprecating video. He would stay on as chairman of Microsoft until 2014. They would He would then hand over the role of chairman to John W. Thompson. Steve Ballmer, who was the CEO of Microsoft since 2000, would also step down in 2014 and was replaced by Satya Nadella. And Microsoft went on to acquire Nokia in 2014 for $7.2 billion. Also bought Mojang, or Mojang for $2.5 billion. That's the game company that created Minecraft. Uh, Microsoft has, of course, been struggling a little bit, uh, especially in areas like mobile. They were never really able to crack mobile in a significant way. They weren't able to go up against iPhone and Android in a way that was really meaningful. And the cloud has also changed the way the company does business significantly. It's not like Microsoft is in danger of just going away, but they've certainly kind of lost some steam with uh, the domination that the company had had back in the 80s and 90s. Also in 2008, in March, just a little bit before we started Tech Stuff, Hulu launched for public access. Now, the site actually went live in 2007. And originally when it went live... It was a website that didn't have any content. You just went there and it said it was coming soon. But then a private beta test followed in late 2007, early 2008. The actual service would not launch till the spring of 2008. It was a joint venture, still is a joint venture between lots of different media companies, but originally it was NBC Universal and Fox. And they had been in the works of designing this project for a couple of years. It launched with shows and movies from around 50 media companies. There were a couple of notable absences from that group. CBS and ABC were both absent from that. Uh, Of course, CBS and ABC are competing broadcast networks with NBC and Fox, so it's not a huge surprise. But in 2009, the Walt Disney Company announced it would purchase a 27% stake in Hulu. And later, when Disney announced in 2017 that it intended to acquire 21st Century Fox, it would mean that Disney would end up having a 30% additional stake in Hulu because Fox owned 30% of Hulu. So that would give Disney controlling interest in Hulu. In 2016, Hulu would end its free ad-supported service because up until then, you could actually log in and watch um, television shows and movies with ads without having to make an account or anything. You could just watch it Then it would require users to sign up for either a $7.99 tier of service that had limited commercials or an $11.99 tier for an ad-free service. I remember when this happened, a lot of users got upset because they didn't like the idea of having to pay for a subscription service where you still had ads at all, even if there was another option to pay a little bit more and get an ad-free experience. The idea was, hey, I already had an ad an ad experience that was otherwise free. Why am I now having to pay for that? So there was a bit of a backlash on that. Hulu announced in January 2018 that it had 17 million subscribers at the end of 2017, which is about a third of what Netflix had at that same time in the United States. Also, Hulu and Netflix are very different things. Netflix is a global entity. It's got a lot of Uh, services in a lot of different countries, whereas Hulu is US-centric, but still, even in the United States, Netflix is about three times more popular than Hulu right now. In 2008, Tesla began production on the Tesla Roadster as a sports car that was an electric sports car, a very fancy kind of sleek looking sports car, but it had a lot of issues before it came out. Uh, had a really rocky journey to production, and the company nearly collapsed in on itself several times before the Roadster ever went into mass production. The company held a launch party for the Roadster back in 2006. This was sort of a preview event with prototype Tesla Roadsters, and they were meant to kind of show off to investors and potential customers and give people rides in these prototypes. Elon Musk, who is frequently cited as a co-founder, though he really came on board after the company had already been founded, uh, but was able to propel it toward its actual eventual ability to do business, he later said that the earliest versions of the Roadster were, quote, completely unsafe, end quote, and that they, quote, broke down all the time, end quote, the Roadster could accelerate from 0 to 100 kilometers an hour or at 62 miles per hour in four seconds with a top speed of 201 kilometers per hour or 125 miles per hour. And on a full battery, it was said to be able to travel about 231 miles or 372 kilometers. It cost just a touch less than a hundred grand if you weren't getting any uh, options on it. And the first Tesla Roadster was delivered to Elon Musk, big surprise. It's the same car that is now in outer space. Musk's other big project is SpaceX. And SpaceX launched his Tesla into heliocentric orbit on February 6, 2018, using a Falcon Heavy rocket. So the car is supposed to end up in the neighborhood of Mars, and it's blasting David Bowie on the radio, which is pretty appropriate. In 2008, Top Gear gave the Roadster a bit of a shakedown on their program. They claimed that it ran out of juice a little early and Tesla ended up suing the BBC for libel, but British courts decided against Tesla and in favor of the BBC. Tesla sold fewer than 2,500 roadsters during the run of cars, which stretched till 2012, and today Tesla has produced more than 300,000 vehicles. The company recently held a press conference where it revealed it was closing in on its production goal of 5,000 vehicles per week for the Model 3 series. And the company still has some analysts concerned because it burns through a lot of cash and it may require more funding to stay in business. So it's, it's not out of the woods yet. Next, I want to talk a little bit about Spore. Spore was a real time strategy game in which you would shape the evolution of life forms that came out in 2008. It was highly anticipated. And it actually experienced several delays before it finally came out. But it also included some digital rights management technology called ROM, S-E-C-U uppercase R-O-M, like read-only memory. And that potentially could open up the possibility of security risks to users' computers, it was later revealed. So that was a bit of a black eye against the game. Uh, it got decent reviews, good critical reception, but it... Well, largely it underperformed. Uh, That same year, Blizzard announced Diablo 3, which ended up being a big hit. Uh, Games that came out that year included stuff like Burnout Paradise, Super Smash Brothers Brawl, uh, Turok, Army of Two, Command and Conquer 3, Assassin's Creed for Windows, Mario Kart Wii, Grand Theft Auto 4, Mass Effect, Ninja Gaiden 2, Star Wars The Force Unleashed, Uh, Bioshock came out for the PS3. It it had already come out for Xbox the year before. Uh, Fallout 3 came out and Left 4 Dead came out. So it was a good year for games. And that's just a a tiny sample of the games that came out. I picked and chose from a huge list. But it was a pretty good year for games. Uh, Fallout 3 and Left 4 Dead are two of my favorites. So, And I actually really like Grand Theft Auto 4, although it has a much darker and more grim tone than a lot of the other uh, entries in that series. Also in 2008, Nintendo would release the Wii Fit. This was a very, very good selling peripheral for the Nintendo Wii. This was the little balance board that you could play with and uh, play various games and the Wii Fit, uh, a game where you would use it to exercise was really popular. So popular in fact that it was really hard to find a Wii Fit even months after it debuted. Nintendo is pretty famous for producing Fewer units than what demand calls for, and the Wii Fit was no exception. And I remember when I was looking for one, it took months before I finally found one. Um, I think it's the third best-selling video game peripheral of all time, so it's pretty impressive. Also in 2008, the Intel Core 2 Duo was the the state-of-the-art in microprocessors at the time. And the Yorkfield quad-core processor from Intel had 45 nanometer components, came out in March 2008. The the state-of-the-art now, if you were to compare it to the top-of-the-line of of Intel, would be the i9-7980XE processor, which has 18 cores, and that'll set you back nearly $2,000 dollars. Uh, Now, earlier in 2018, there was a report that revealed that two security flaws in Intel chips called Spectre and Meltdown were in practically every processor made by Intel for the last 20 years. And to be fair, they don't just affect Intel processors. More on that in a second. So Meltdown is a problem where you're, you're supposed to have isolation between applications and a computer's operating system. There's supposed to be bits that prevent data exchanges from happening willy-nilly. It protects data from one app from being accessed by other apps, but this flaw in various processors breaks this down. So potentially, you could create a program that would be able to access the information generated by other programs. And it's possible that sensitive information could be sniffed out and leaked. Spectre is kind of similar, but using a different vulnerability. Spectre is harder to implement, uh, but it's also harder to fix. So if you can effectively leverage Spectre, it's harder to fix it. Uh, Jan Horn, who worked on Google Project Zero, was one of the individuals to report these flaws. Uh, They were reported by others independently around the same time. Uh, It's interesting that Horn was able to find both of these on Intel chips. And the vulnerability would allow an attacker to see all sorts of sensitive information, including passwords and login information, not to mention sensitive stuff you've stored on your computer. Now, the Meltdown vulnerability affects all Intel processors that were produced since 1995, with the exception of Intel Itanium and the Intel Atom processors from before 2013. Spectre is even worse. It affects Intel, AMD, and ARM processors. Now, this is a problem that affects Macs and PCs, and it's likely to be an issue for a really long time. And there's not an easy fix for Spectre. Uh, Various operating system builds can be patched against Meltdown, however. Now, I have a lot more to say about what happened in 2008 and how it's changed in the 10 years since. But before I get into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, so Twitter. Now, Twitter was already a thing in 2008. It had had a soft launch in 2006. It got bigger in 2007 after it had a a good showing at South by and it continued to grow in 2008. Jack Dorsey stepped down from his role as the Twitter CEO, and Evan Williams would take over, and Twitter would experience rapid growth. So Twitter had a pretty good year in 2008. Now, it's interesting because Jack Dorsey would become the interim CEO again in July 2015. He would take over, and then he was named permanent CEO, in October 2015, so Dorsey started as CEO, stepped down, took over as an interim CEO in 2015, and now as CEO of the company once more. Twitter's revenue, uh, depends almost entirely upon advertising. So here's a quick rundown of how it's been doing recently. From the 2018 financial report, the company states that more than 85% of all revenue comes from ads, and that nearly all that revenue comes from promoted tweets, promoted accounts, and promoted trends. And the net income for 2017 was $61 million, with a margin of 9%. Monthly active users during the first quarter of 2018 earnings call was cited at 336 million people, with 69 million of those in the United States. So not the dominant factor that it once was, maybe, but still doing quite well. One thing that debuted in 2008 that really uh, helped shape the way our world works today was the iPhone 3G and the App Store as well. Apple's iPhone 3G was actually the second generation iPhone. And the name refers to the cell network technology it was compatible with, not the generation of the iPhone. And that caused some confusion at the time, because obviously it was the second iPhone, but it was called the iPhone 3G. And so there had some people wondering, well, what happened to the iPhone 2? Well, it is the iPhone too. It's just it's called the 3G because the 3G network provided faster data transfer speeds than the edge network that the original iPhone depended upon. The price tag for the phone was just $199. This was a big price cut from the previous iPhone, although that came along with some pretty hefty uh contract requirements. So it wasn't like you were really saving money in the long run. The Money was just shifted to a monthly fee as opposed to the upfront fee. The iPhone 3G was in many ways similar to the first iPhone apart from this 3G capability. For example, it had the same sort of camera, a 2 megapixel camera. There was no additional cameras, just the one, and it didn't have video capabilities at that time. Uh, it didn't look that different from the original iPhone. If you put them side by side, they'd look very similar, although the iPhone 3G had a slightly thicker black border around the, the perimeter of the screen. And also the back of the iPhone 3G was in plastic. It was either in white or black plastic. The original iPhone had a recessed 3.5mm headphone jack, which... Meant that it was really kind of hard to use third party headphones with it because of that recessed, uh, nature. You couldn't, a lot of the plugs wouldn't reach and it frustrated a lot of people who didn't want to just have to buy Apple products to, to use the iPhone. So the iPhone 3G no longer had a recessed 3.5 millimeter headphone jack. It was flush with the end of the phone. So it made it easier to plug stuff into. The 3G also included GPS hardware in the phone, and that would pretty much foretell the beginning of the end of standalone GPS devices. It's not like they've all disappeared. There's still standalone GPS devices on the market, but they've been largely replaced by smartphones. And the iPhone 3G was kind of the the harbinger of that. So for those people who still have a standalone GPS receiver, It's kind of interesting, but most people, I think, have switched over to smartphones, just as I think a lot of people have decided to depend upon their smartphones as their MP3 player, their streaming video device. They don't tend to have as many uh, people depending on standalone dedicated devices. I used to be a holdout for that. If you've been listening to tech stuff for a long time, you know that Chris and I, when we would have these discussions, I would talk to him about how... I don't want to have all my music on my phone because at that time, phones had very limited storage space and there weren't a lot of streaming services that you could use to listen to music. Uh, and if you did want to do that, you were eating up a lot of data and if you didn't have a really good network nearby or Wi-Fi hotspots you could connect to, then you would have a lot of interruption in your service. So I preferred having a dedicated MP3 player and a dedicated GPS. But these days... The technology has improved so significantly over the last 10 years that I can't imagine having, carrying around an extra MP3 player or having an extra GPS system to, uh, to depend upon in a vehicle. There's just no need for it anymore. Today's iPhones are of course way more advanced and sleek than the iPhone 3G was. They also did away with that 3.5 millimeter headphone jack entirely. Of course, the iPhone's not alone in this. A lot of phones have gotten rid of that, as my Android phone, for example, doesn't have a 3.5 millimeter jack either, so I can't just point fingers at Apple for this. Apple also launched the App Store in 2008, which is, you know, kind of hard to believe it didn't exist during the original iPhone run. For the full year, iPhone was out and there was no App Store at all. Initially, the App Store had about 500 apps available, and today it's more than 2 million. And it wasn't always a guarantee that we would get an app store. Steve Jobs initially opposed the idea of allowing third-party developers to create applications for the iPhone. He was worried that it would negatively impact the Apple experience. It's a very Apple thing and a very Steve Jobs thing to want to control that experience precisely, to deliver to the user what Steve Jobs felt was the ideal experience. Jobs was not about giving the user what he or she wanted. Jobs was all about giving the user what Jobs wanted. And he was worried that allowing third party developers to create apps would fracture his device. It would make it uh, do things that it wasn't intended to do and perhaps dilute the experience. But eventually he was convinced to do otherwise. And it ended up being a incredibly profitable decision for Apple because Apple would take about 30% of the revenues generated from apps. Whether it was a purchase price up front or an ongoing subscription fee or whatever it might be, Apple would get a 30% take. So developers would take the other 70%. This made Apple truckloads of money, like massive, truckloads. A Forbes piece from January 2018 stated that the App Store earned $11.5 billion in revenue for Apple in 2017. So it ended up being an incredibly beneficial decision for Apple to go with this App Store approach. It's a very uh, low-cost way for Apple to make a huge amount of money. Google Android came out in 2008. We even did an episode titled How the Google Android Phone Will Work back in the early days of tech stuff. Android was revealed in 2007, but the first device running on Android did not come out until the fall of 2008. Android had started out as a startup in 2003. It was founded by Rich Miner, Nick Sears, Chris White, and Andy Rubin. Rubin wanted to create an operating system platform for mobile devices that would allow for more rich experiences and ones that would largely depend upon context, like the location of the user, for example. And Google would acquire Android, the company, in 2005 for a bunch of money. But it was kind of a private affair, so that number has never been officially acknowledged. Uh, Most estimates put it somewhere around $50 million. The first phone to feature the uh, the Android operating system was the HTC Dream, a.k.a. the G1 on the T-Mobile network. I don't think I had a G1. I remember I got the HTC G2. I don't remember if I had an HTC Dream. But the HTC G2, which came out in 2010, I definitely had. And uh, both of those featured a a screen that would slide up to reveal a physical keyboard underneath. And I really like that. I don't like on-screen keyboards. Even though I've had phones for the last several years, and that's the only kind that I've bought were the ones with on-screen keyboards, I've always preferred the physical ones. I just felt like it gave a better experience. Android would trail a year behind iPhone and the iOS, now, obviously, that came out in 2007, and Android didn't have a phone out till 2008. But that didn't hurt Android very much. In 2018, the Android operating system accounts for nearly 86% of all smartphone operating system market share worldwide. 86%. Compare that to iOS's about 14%. Pretty much everything else is scrambling for less than a percent of the share. So it's down to... Mostly Android, a little bit iPhone, and then everybody else. So why did Android dominate? It's not necessarily a sign that it's a superior operating system. Now, I prefer Android to iOS, but I think Apple's smartphone operating system is pretty amazing. And I don't deny that it's it's fantastic. It really is great. I just prefer Android. But I think the reason why Android... Outperforms Apple. In fact, I'm pretty sure this is the reason is that Google allows numerous handset manufacturers to use the Android operating system on their products. You just license it from Google. If you want an iOS device, you have to go through Apple for hardware. Apple's the only company that makes devices that run iOS. So there's a limitation on what sort of models and which price points you can get If you want an iOS device, whereas with Android, there's an entire spectrum. You can it spans everything from budget smartphones to high end models. So there's a lot more availability there. And I think that's the secret to why Android is such a dominant player in the operating system space. It's not that Android is necessarily superior, although I definitely prefer it. It's that Android is available on a lot more products than iOS is. And that's the real reason. Now, something else that came online in September 2008 and also was from Google was the Chrome browser. It is hard for me to believe that tech stuff is older than Google Chrome. So what the heck was I using to do research back then? That's a rhetorical question. I actually remember it was Firefox. But Chrome's big innovation was that every tab was to run as a separate instance, which meant that the overall browser was much more stable. All processes were isolated. So if something went wrong in one tab, it would not cause the entire browser to fail. So you could keep your other tabs active. So let's say that you have a plugin that has a compatibility issue or something, and one tab ends up giving you an error. The other tabs would still be fine. So you could close out the problematic tab and everything else would still be there. Chrome combined a search and address bar into a single bar, and that also got people confused at first, but that was a very new innovation. You could either type a web address directly into the bar, or you could just type in some search terms, and it would pull up a Google search related to that. Uh, This is, of course, the way Google Chrome still works to this day. According to StatCounter, which aggregates data to determine market share percentage of various products, Chrome is the dominant web browser out there today, accounting for nearly 60% of all browsers. The next highest is Safari, which is around 14%. All other browsers each command 10% or less of the market. So Chrome now dominates. But when our show launched, there was no such browser in existence. In October 2008... Spotify would launch, so our show is actually older than Spotify as well. Now, the domain Spotify was registered all the way back in 2006, and it was founded by Daniel Eck and Martin Lorentzon in Stockholm. The service ran a beta test that started back in 2007, so that predates my show. Uh, that included running test ads in early 2008 before they had their official launch, Now, upon launch, Spotify was initially only available in Scandinavia, the United Kingdom, France, and Spain. What's more, the free service was invitation only. Now, anyone could sign up for a premium service that was like a subscription-based service, but to use just the free ad-supported one, you had to get an invite first. Spotify landed licensing deals with most of the major music studios out there, so they were able to play lots of music. Apparently, it took a really long time, like two and a half years, to get all of that signed up and and sealed up before they could launch. Spotify would end up getting a bit of a boost from Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook fame, but Spotify just didn't become available in the United States until 2011. And by then, the company was already valued at $1 billion dollars. In April 2018, Spotify filed for a direct listing on the stock market rather than an initial public offering. This involves doing away with intermediaries like underwriters and selling shares directly to the public without issuing new shares of stock. So those who held stake in the company when it was a private entity are free to sell their shares to the public at that point. Reuters calculated Spotify's value at $19 billion. And now let's talk about one of my favorite technologies that really came online in 2008, the Large Hadron Collider. It started up at 1028 a.m. September 10th, 2008. It fired a proton beam around the 27-kilometer collider for the very first time. And the Large Hadron Collider is a particle accelerator and collider. It uses uh, very narrow beams of particles moving at very fast speeds, like near the speed of light in this massive circle going around and around and around until two beams going in opposite directions are directed to have collisions at one of several detectors. There are are several major detectors around uh, the circumference of this device. And there you have these particles slamming into each other at very high uh, velocity and they break apart and then we pay attention and see what happens uh very those magnets are have to be super cooled. they have to be cooled with first liquid nitrogen and then liquid helium to get them so cold that they are superconductors they they you don't lose any energy to uh resistance at that temperature and the collisions produce information about the very basic stuff of our universe since it came online uh, and it took a while before the large hadron collider was actually able to do collisions that would uh, produce data they Online process was a very long, laborious one, but since then they were able to prove, or at least uh, sh- show evidence for, the Higgs boson particle that had been hypothesized up to that point, but never proven. And now we've thought that we've observed it. We've got very good proof that we've observed it to to a very high degree of certainty. And this particle is why matter has mass. It's uh, predicted by the standard model, and it's pretty cool. Also, the Large Hadron Collider in general has shown that the standard model of physics is really, really good, that there's no exotic decays, there are no fundamental rules of the standard model that don't appear to hold up, there are no deviations, significant deviations from the standard model, and in case you're wondering, the standard model covers three of the four fundamental forces in the universe, and those would be the strong uh, and weak nuclear forces, that's two of them. The electromagnetic force, that's the third, but the fourth one, gravity, is not included in the standard model. So the standard model is not a complete model of how our universe works. It's more of a model of how a bunch of our universe works. And there's a whole lot left unexplained, including stuff like dark energy. So while the LHC has done a lot to reinforce the standard model, we still have a lot of questions, which is one of the reasons science is so freaking cool. Some people are a little disappointed that the LHC hasn't turned up stuff outside the standard model, but it has only collected about 2% of all the data it will generate during its lifetime, so it's still incredibly early in the process. Also, uh, just so you know, it did not create an enormous black hole and destroy all of us, so that's good. All right, I've got a little bit more to talk about with 2008, but before I do, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Alright, here's something else that happened in 2008 that I thought was pretty cool. The white paper Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system was published in November 2008 written by someone or possibly more than one someone using the pen name Satoshi Nakamoto. This was the white paper that explained the principles behind Bitcoin. And in case you don't remember what Bitcoin is, it is a digital currency and it relies upon a system that, uh, Puts all of the transactions of Bitcoin into blocks of data, and those blocks end up forming a chain. We call it blockchain. And the the process of verifying a transaction is uh, it, it involves solving a really difficult math problem. And if you have the computer that solves that math problem first and verifies those transactions, you're rewarded with some bitcoins. It's a process called mining the number of Bitcoins you're rewarded with decreases over time. After a certain number of Bitcoins are released out into the wild, uh, you get a reduction by about half, actually it is half, of the number of Bitcoins that are released after the next uh, series of successful verifications. And this goes on for quite some time until you hit another limit, and then it's halved again, and so on and so forth, until eventually you have all the entire supply of Bitcoins that will ever exist out in circulation. And from that point forward, when you uh, verify a block of transactions, you are awarded a small amount of money as a transaction fee. Sort of you're you're rewarded for the verification, but you're no longer getting new Bitcoins at that point. You're just getting a portion of the Bitcoins that were used in whatever the transaction happened to be. It's kind of like getting a a charge to uh, run a credit card scan. So... That's typically how Bitcoin works, or or from a very high level. And no one was really sure if it was going to take off or not, or if it was just going to be kind of this weird scheme. I mean, it's a decentralized currency. There's no government agency that dictates what it should be. And its value has changed dramatically over time. So since Bitcoin became a real thing, well, I mean, as, as real a thing as digital data gets anyway, its value has gone from less than... Less than a dime per Bitcoin to a high of nearly $20,000 per Bitcoin in December 2017. Now, as I researched the show, the value was closer to $7,500 per Bitcoin. That was in early June 2018. So that's pretty wild to think that it used to be 20 grand per Bitcoin. Now it's $7,500 per Bitcoin. And who knows what it'll be next month. Now, recently, a report that relied on stylometric analysis of Nakamoto's white papers concluded that Gavin Andreessen, a lead developer on Bitcoin, is actually Satoshi Nakamoto, saying that Andreessen's writing and the white papers that were uh, attributed to Nakamoto share a lot of similarities, and Andreessen denies that claim. Stylometry, as the name implies, compares the writing styles of multiple pieces of work in an effort to determine if those pieces were in fact written by the same person. Stylometry looks at word choice and vocabulary and some other elements, and it's not an exact science. Stylometric results can be easily influenced by tweaking a few different inputs, and that's led some people to dismiss the strategy, saying it's not really reliable. You can't really be sure... That the outcome is, is truly evidence that two pieces of work were written by the same person. But what's the big deal? Why, why do we care who Nakamoto is anyway? Because after all, we just need to know the currency works. Well, Nakamoto is believed to own about 5% of all bitcoins, which would make him a multi-billionaire at this point at least on paper. But there's a generally held belief that if Nakamoto were to cash in on this 5%, it would be viewed as a vote of no confidence in the virtual currency, and the value of the currency would plummet as a result. So Nakamoto would make out like a bandit, but everyone else would see their currency start to lose value, and it could create a sort of a run on the currency as everyone tries to cash in before the currency is valueless. On a related concern, there are these... Entities called Bitcoin whales, and these are people or organizations that own a relatively large number of Bitcoins. According to Bloomberg, about 1,000 people own 40% of the entire Bitcoin market. Now, that could spell trouble. The worry is that if these whales were to sell off a significant portion of their holdings, it would precipitate a steep drop in Bitcoin value, just like I was talking about with Nakamoto. And if they all corroborated to cash in at the same time, it could cause a total collapse of the system. So let's say that you are one of these whales. Let's say that you own a significant number of Bitcoins and you notice that the value has crept as high as it's ever been. Maybe it's at that $20,000 mark. And you think, I want to cash in now because my investment has grown so much. It's going to make me a multimillionaire, but it doesn't do me any good just to hold on to Bitcoins. I would rather have quote unquote real currency because it's hard to spend a currency a, a unit of currency if its value fluctuates so dramatically so quickly. if one day it's worth seventy five hundred dollars the next day it's worth twenty thousand dollars and you spent it back when it was seventy five hundred dollars, you can't help but think wow, I lost thousands of dollars on that transaction because I spent it too quickly. but if you trade it in for a more stable currency, then you might feel better about it. So if you did that, if you went and traded this in, other people might see it as a sign that you feel the value of Bitcoin is as high as it's ever going to be, and other people might want to cash in as well. And pretty soon you've got a lot of people selling and not a whole lot of people buying, and the value of the coin drops as supply greatly outpaces demand. And then eventually the value could collapse in on itself. So it's a dangerous thing. It hasn't happened yet, though, at least not on that scale. We've definitely seen massive fluctuations in value. But some people say it's just little market corrections that have returned it to uh, a more stable uh, Bitcoin per dollar exchange rate. Still astronomical. I mean, $7,500 for a Bitcoin is pretty incredible. Also in 2008, Facebook launched a major site redesign that forced all users to opt in by September of that year, and people hated it. And of course, the same thing has happened several times since then. Whenever Facebook does a redesign, you can expect the next month to be filled with people talking about how much they hate the redesign. And these would be the same people who hated the last redesign. So eventually what happens is people get used to the redesign. They might not love it, but they get used to it, and then they hate change. Anyway, Facebook would turn cash flow positive for the very first time in 2009. The Social Network, a film about Facebook's early days, would debut in 2010. Google Plus would launch in 2011. I'll talk more about that in our next episode. Facebook Messenger would launch in 2011. Uh, Facebook would acquire Instagram in 2012 for $1 billion. I talked about that recently in the Instagram episodes. And Facebook would hold its initial public offering in 2012, and it would be valued at $104 billion upon opening of the stock market. In 2014, Facebook acquired Oculus Virtual Reality and also acquired the messaging service WhatsApp that year for a massive amount of money. MySpace was way ahead of Facebook in traffic up through the beginning of 2008, until April 19th. And that was the first time when Facebook would take the lead in traffic and then Facebook pretty much kept it. So it's hard to remember that now. It's hard to believe it really. But in 2008, when Tech Stuff launched, MySpace was a real contender with Facebook. It was it was doing well, uh, or at least it was on the tail end of doing well. It was just on the, the precipice of dropping off the map. So News Corp, which had bought MySpace in July 2005 for $580 million, would hold on to the site until 2011. And at that point, they tried to sell it. And their first attempts to sell it failed. They were looking to get somebody to at least put in a bid of $50 million. And that didn't work. Eventually, they were able to sell MySpace to a company called Specific Media, for an undisclosed amount although it was rumored to be around 35 million. So News Corp bought it at 580 million and sold it at 35 million. Ouch. Eventually Time Inc bought MySpace in 2016 and it used to be the most visited site on the internet at least for US users. Now it's ranked below 1600 in the United States. And that's just kind of a a quick overview of some of the things that were going on in 2008 and how they've changed in those 10 years. In our next episode, I'm going to dive into this a little bit on a different uh different path. I'm going to look at things uh, companies that did not exist in 2008, but they do exist today and tell you a little bit about those. So stuff that popped up in the decades since we started doing this show. Stuff that launched after Tech Stuff did, but did not stick around. So I'll talk about companies like Pebble and Cool and Yik Yak, stuff like that. And then the stuff that existed before Tech Stuff launched, but don't exist no more. Stuff like Jawbone. Companies that had been around, but no longer exist t- today. So make sure you tune into that next episode. It'll be kind of a part two celebration of tech stuff's 10 years to talk about how time has really made a huge impact, how technology changes as years pass and how things that we kind of count on one year can go away another year. And then five years later, you don't even think about it anymore. But guys, I want to thank you for listening to Tech Stuff, for supporting this show. Some of you have been with me since the very beginning. Huge thanks to you guys. Some of you have probably started listening pretty recently, and thanks to you as well. I'm glad all of you can be part of this community. I really look forward to doing a ton more shows. We've got a lot of really cool things coming down the line that I I think you guys will be excited about, including, you know, have you ever wanted to buy, like, a Tech Stuff t-shirt? Stay tuned, guys. That's all I can say about that. But I'm really excited to keep on working on this show and, and to do brand new episodes about all sorts of technology topics. If you have a suggestion for something I absolutely should cover, whether it's a technology, maybe it's a person that I should, I should profile or a company, let me know. Or maybe there's someone you would like me to interview or have on as a guest host. Send me a message. The email address for the show is techstuff at com. Or drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.